0: This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, JOY. Keep JOY on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. JOY, a diverse sound for a diverse community.
1: This is A Little Pot of JOY, the podcast program.
0: Welcome. This is A Little Pot of JOY, the podcast show. Our community is made up of so many amazing and diverse groups of people, as are the programs on Joy 94.9. There's something here for everyone. A Little Pot of Joy is where we highlight just some of these amazing programs.
2: We would like to show our respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land of elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, whose land we are broadcasting from. That was Alice. Thanks
0: for having me on the show, Andrea. It's been a while.
2: And she's our very special guest this evening.
0: Thanks, Andrea. We're opening the evening with a podcast from The Informer, legislation surrounding hormone treatment for young trans people.
2: The number of children transitioning has risen exponentially over the past few years. The Royal Children's Hospital is expecting at least 250 referrals this year.
0: The transition process for children is twofold. After a child has undergone extensive medical and psychological assessment, they can be prescribed hormone blockers to suppress the onset of puberty.
2: The second stage of transition is to start hormone therapy, either testosterone or estrogen, to facilitate transition. But the family must get permission from the family court's judge to begin hormones, delaying the child's physical development.
0: Naomi and Isabella join Shannon, Stephanie and Emma to discuss the long and drawn-out legal process... At a time where other children are developing into adults, transgender children have their puberty suppressed for many years, increasing both social and mental stress for the child.
2: So if you can't listen to The Informer Live, podcasts are available for download from the JOY website, joy.org.au forward slash The Informer, or download them from the iTunes
1: store. This is A Little Pot of JOY, the podcast program.
3: Good evening and welcome to your Monday night edition of The Informer on Joy 94.9. My name is Shannon Power and I will be your host this evening along with Stephanie McLean and Emma Arnold. The number of children transitioning has risen exponentially over the past few years. The Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne is expecting to receive at least 250 referrals this year alone. The medical process for children to transition is twofold. First, they're prescribed hormone blockers, which are approved by a doctor, a child's parent or guardian, after the child has undergone psychological assessment. Next, they need to start hormone therapy, either taking estrogen or testosterone to help them transition. But a family has to get permission off a family court judge to begin that therapy. The traumatic court process for trans children is both preventing them from quick and easy access to crucial hormones a group called pa- Parents of gender Diverse Children travelled to Canberra earlier this year to petition lawmakers to change the law.
4: Isabel McNamara started transitioning when she was just 10 years old and is now 13. She joins us on the line with her mum, Naomi, and they want to share with us their experience of going through the family court process or pre-court process. No- Naomi and Isabel, welcome to The Informer. Thank you. Thanks so Thanks. much. <laughs> Are you there? We're both here, yeah. Oh great! I believe you're sharing a phone, so <laughs> I hope you can hear we us. We are. All. <laughs> We're all here. I'm here with Shannon and Emma. Um, thanks Hi, for joining. Thanks for joining us and for um, you know coming out and being so passionate about this issue and wanting to share your story with us. Um, can you tell us what your experience has been like so far? So it's it's been three years, I believe, since um, since Isabel began her transition process.
5: Uh, yeah. Um, Isabel um, told us how she was feeling just after her 10th birthday and and transitioned fairly soon after that, within a couple of months of of that discussion. Um, And um, we've had a pretty positive experience. We live in a small country town and and, um, Isabel goes to school in a slightly bigger small country town. (laughs) Um, And so we were a little bit concerned about, you know, what the reaction would be and and, you know, we're still trying to grapple with it ourselves, I guess. And we had a really positive experience from from the school um, and, and from the broader community. We've had um, a lot of support, which has been wonderful.
3: So just to give us an idea, how important is it to know that you do have that positive support around you?
5: Um, oh, look, for, for me as a parent, it's incredibly important. It just gives you some level of confidence that um, things are going to be OK. Um, you know, the... One of the first thoughts that both Andrew and I had when Isabel told us was, you know, how difficult are things going to be for her and we worried about her safety and, and, you know, a whole range of things. So to know that you have um, a supportive community behind you, a supportive school behind you, makes all the difference in the world. Well,
6: it's good that you had that support on a local scale, but then I guess the offhand of that is that on a more... Statewide or even countrywide scale, the entire court is almost against the whole. You know, the the, the process should be as easy as possible, and there are so many barriers yeah. preventing it. So, do you feel that um, the whole process would have been easier if the country was supporting you as well as your local support?
5: Oh, look, absolutely. I think there certainly is a need for some some legislative reform around um, and, and removing the family court from from the process of accessing. Um, treatment and and, you know you mentioned um, stage one treatment um, up until a couple of years ago um, required um, families and young people to attend court to get approval for hormone blockers as well and we're very very fortunate that a family a a wonderful family you know stuck their neck out and and, um, went but did the hard yards and and overturned um overturned that decision so so now you know all children across Australia no longer have to present to family court for approval for stage one, um, but unfortunately, we're in a position where where um, uh, young people still have to attend court to um, to get approval for stage two treatment. So that's the court is essentially assessing um, whether or not a child is still competent. So that is a child is able to make. Um, a, a medical decision of that type.
3: So Naomi, just give us an idea of where you are in that stage. Have you begun petitioning the family court in order for Isabel to access her hormone treatment or where are you exactly in the process?
5: Uh, we're we're not there yet, so we're we're still a couple of years away from 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 having to, to do that and we'll be we'll be guided by um, the specialists at the Royal Children's Hospital to the right time for that. Um, but I guess we, we want to ensure that Isabel is never put in that position um, and, and that's why we, along with a lot of other families um, and, and young people, are, um, are working really hard to advocate for a change in this area.
4: And um, Naomi, what are some of the implications of young people who have had to go through the process of, of facing the family court in order to get their hormone treatment? Do you know of any, any of those implications?
5: yeah look it's certainly delayed treatment for um, a lot of young people um, which can have really devastating effects um, on on young people. It certainly increases their stress levels in in an in already incredibly stressful um, situation and, and has a has a massive impact on their on their um on their mental health and their and their general wellbeing. So if a young person um, you know is petitioning court to um for approval for stage two, um, and who, they're not on blockers, then, then they are, you know, feminising or masculising when they don't actually want to or, or need to, because there's treatment available to to prevent that. So that has long-lasting impact on 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 them, on them, you know, on their sense of self, really.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So Isabel, um, tell us uh, about a little bit about your transitioning process. How, how is it going for you, and how have you found it so far?
7: Uh Pretty good, mostly. But it was a bit hard at first, but after about a year, people get used to it, and everything's okay.
3: And what's the best part of you know going through the process?
7: Best part? Um, <laughs>
3: hmm. Sure, there's a lot of awesome parts to Being it. Being able
7: to be me.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, do you? um I know that, like, all this law stuff and legal stuff can, can be a bit tricky to get your head around. How much, um, mm-hmm. I guess, do you understand about what the next process is for you to get onto to the hormones? Is it something that you... Um, what was that, sorry? Oh, is it something that you, you understand well, or is it, you know, you where you're being guided by, by your parents and the doctor?
7: I understand. Yeah. I understand completely. Age two and they understand the worries people might have about it, but I still don't think it's a good enough excuse for people to feel what they feel in that time. Yeah,
3: absolutely. So you're the person who is transitioning, you're the person who's actually going through it. Your doctors can support you and your parents can support Mm -hmm. you. But I think it's important for us to understand from your own brain and your own mouth why is it so important that this law changes?
7: Because well, for me personally, if I have to go through almost all of high school. I won't be able to feminize until I'm, till I'm about seventeen. Well, I know that I just couldn't go through that watching everyone else go through this, and I won't even mature for a very long time. This kind of hurts me. and makes me feel very
4: stressed, and and, and just, it's not fair. Absolutely. Uh, sorry to interrupt you Isabel how do you, having um, been linked up with the children's hospital and meeting all the doctors and professionals that are obviously guiding you through this process, do you feel that that support, you're getting enough support through the hospital system rather than having to go and have the sign off from the family courts as well? I feel
7: like I get more than enough from the family not family court, (laughs)
4: hospital
7: (laughs) the family court shouldn't have anything in it, my doctor's know what's right for me and they are the only people and me who should have a say only me and my doctors should have a say in what I have yeah absolutely and with an
6: issue like this a lot of people don't know about it because it doesn't affect them but do you think that if more people understood there would be a bigger change
7: yes if more people actually took the time to understand this situation they would understand that Everything we go through, we, re- we don't just do it. We don't just do it because we feel like, because we just want to be a girl or a boy. We are these people and we shouldn't have to be hidden from it.
4: Well that's a very powerful statement indeed. I think um yeah, you're very brave to come and chat to us about it, Isabel, and we're very grateful to hear what you have to say. But just one last question to finish off for, for you and your <laughs> mum, Naomi. How far are you guys willing to go in this fight and how can the community support you? Do you
5: want me to answer that? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, sharing the phone. <laughs> <you> again. Um <laughs> look um we're willing to do whatever it takes. I mean, we we have um we've we've travelled to Canberra a couple of times now and, and spoken to um some some great allies up there and and um Isabel and I had the opportunity to to present as part of a panel with some um other wonderful um parents and young people and 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 we're we, we're willing to do that again. We're willing to do whatever it takes. We, we'd be really you know happy for I guess in terms of what the community can do is. Is I guess just to uh, open their minds a little bit, so for, for those minds that may be a little closed right now, and, and understand that this, um, you know, accessing this treatment is is not a, a choice that people necessarily make. Certainly, it's not not something that Isabel is choosing to do. It's it's something that is absolutely necessary for her her long term health and well being. So to to be faced with a decision where you you know you have to access the treatment and then to have to go to family court to um, get approval for that treatment feels Really unjust, um, and it feels like she's being punished to something that that you know she hasn't actually had any control over. Um, so it, it it is you know it's not in step with, with anything that's happening internationally. Um, Australia is the only jurisdiction uh, where this is required. It, it's just a little bit outmoded, and, and it's time for a change. So I I would urge the community to, to get on on board with this when when there is any an opportunity to to. Um, to spread the word or to or to advocate, and and you know we're really happy to work with uh, the Chief Justice and, and um, the Family Court and and um, any politician who is who is um, uh, in a position to to assist us. Uh, and we've had some fantastic support already from um, Kathy McGowan and uh, Janet Rice and Warren Inch. Um, we've been very very lucky.
4: Well, that's it's wonderful to hear and um, unfortunately we've got to wrap it up now because we're out of time. But thank you so much for coming and joining us on The Informer this evening. You're both wonderful women and we really appreciate you sharing your story with us.
5: Thanks for having
4: us. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> that was
6: Naomi and Isabel McNamara.
2: You're on JOY 94.9 and this is All part of Joy with your host, Andrea and Alice.
0: Up next, part two from the informal legislation surrounding hormone treatment for young trans people.
2: Mona, a Melbourne transgender woman, joins Stephanie, Emma and Shannon to discuss the difficulties facing gender-diverse children.
0: The large number of issues arises from having to apply to the family courts to access stage two of the transition treatment, which creates unnecessary social, mental, and physical stress.
2: As a gender diverse child, they must get court authority to transition. At what point do people in courts get a medical certificate to be able to judge the health and well-being of an individual?
0: With a two-year waiting list to access the courts and an additional two-year waiting list to access stage two medical assistance, that has an immense impact on a person's life.
2: So if you miss The Informer Live, podcasts are available for download from the JOY website, joy.org.au forward slash The Informer, or download them from the iTunes store.
1: You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program.
6: on Joy 94.9 with Stephanie McLean, Emma Arnold and Shannon Power. Now earlier on I actually had the chance to speak with Mona, a Melbourne trans woman and we spoke for actually over 20 minutes, I think it was nearly a good half hour Um, and it was honestly so good to hear everything she had to say about her experiences because she was as equally honest and insightful about it all Um, obviously we don't have time for the whole half hour but here is a quick snippet that relates to what we spoke about today People questioning why we're having this conversation, why it's so in the Mm. media right now, is because this is so ridiculously important.
8: Yeah. And, I mean, we've seen a lot of strides for trans awareness, but that people think it's over so quickly. And it's not because you don't have to live it. You don't Mm. have to deal with it. I mean, in terms of my family, I've got two, two immediate family who are teachers, and my sister's partner as well is also a teacher, and they've said to me, you know before understanding that you were trans it was hard to have this connection with students who might end up coming to you through the safe schools program or even just saying you know being comfortable enough to say to you i am trans or i'm i've got questions about gender identity and saying that you know somebody who is trans allows you to really make a personal connection and understand that it's it is just a person sitting in front of you who's said I'm not changing who I am I'm just changing how I want to be exist in the world
6: yeah it's not like you've decided this is who I am it's that you've you are who you are and you're just voicing it exactly and you should be allowed to voice it freely exactly yeah well on that topic As gender-diverse children must apply to the family court for stage 2 treatment involving gender-changing hormones, this creates a large number of issues, both mentally and physically, for children who identify as trans. In what ways do you think this separates trans people from the rest of the LGBTIQA community?
8: So I think the biggest issue there is that you need to undertake a legal process to be justified as who you are rather than... In terms of being gay or lesbian, you know, I mean, a lot of people will just think that you're just, you've made a choice or anything like that, but there's no legal process for being acknowledged as gay or lesbian. Um,
6: Yet there's one for trans people.
8: Yeah, in terms yeah. of being trans, or rather in terms of being a trans child.
6: Like you have to get a certificate of approval.
8: Exactly. And, and that exists
6: nowhere else in this community.
8: It's really upsetting to say that you need to seek our approval to be who you are, or rather to even explore who you are there's no other childhood developmental process where you'll have to go through the courts i mean you 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 just end up making life more difficult for these kids and then you say oh we're just trying to make you safer it's like well if you're trying to make us safer listen to what we're trying to say and we're saying make it easier for us to access these things
6: don't put out this idea that we
8: need your approval Mm. it ends up Saying you need to be subservient to Mm. to us,
6: our norms and our standards, and of course, it is important that youth who identify as trans and their families seek advice and seek help, and it should be readily available Mm. at all times. But that should not come from the courts, because what, at what point do people in the courts get a medical certificate?
8: At, At what point do people in the courts think that the trans children coming to them, having considered this, there's no person who says, "I want to identify." as uh, another gender who hasn't gone through a self-questioning process and even a medical process. There's not many medical procedures where you need a legal intervention before you undertake it especially one so passive as hormone treatment
6: and especially one that is so infringing on the possibility to have a successful transition because mm. the waiting list can be up to two years
8: yeah and that's just through the courts just through, through the, through courts, the medical yeah. procedure prior to going to the courts it's just as long so you're, you're looking at up to a four-year wait time before you can even transition and you're already going through puberty it's a really difficult idea and there's I mean it's not like you you're going to be going through all this without having thought about it first and a lot of a lot of the time families don't have the money to take their children through this process. I've got several friends who who just had to be binding and doing it. You know, binding's a very dangerous process. Why must we go through that rather than allowing us to develop in the way that we've We've identified, we want to develop as.
6: Absolutely. 50 to 60% of trans people experience depression or related disorders. Do you think this is a reflection of the culture in Australia or a lack of understanding that could be fixed with better education programs?
8: Well, I think, I mean, you know, we've all been in high school and we've all seen what kids do to other kids, but when you're even more different, it just makes it, it just takes it that whole step further. To say that, you know, you're completely this otherness that Mm. people don't really find it easy to comprehend
6: and some people fear it especially in high school and from that fear comes the bully and comes the hatred and comes just disgusting treatment
8: exactly and i mean seeing other kids bully each other it sort of normalizes that behavior and when somebody is that other it's so easy to point the spotlight away from you and towards them and say uh oh, why do you want to wear the dress why do you want to yeah it's just really upsetting to know that kids who couldn't deal with bullying in the first place are now having to deal with a whole nother level where they're most likely losing friends just because they're trying to say this is who i am i want to share this with you
6: Now, 10 months ago, a South Australian LGBTI and asylum seeker advocate was voted into the Australian Senate. Robert Sims was expected to serve a six-year term, a typical Senate term but recently with the double dissolution election has changed those plans and Robert lost his seat to Family First's Bob Day. Now, speaking of technical issues, well, I guess an election isn't a technical issue, but anyway. (laughs) um, Yeah, Shannon, tell us what happened with old mate Robert today. So,
3: old mate Robert, uh, we couldn't get him on the phone. He's in Adelaide tonight. Maybe the time delay or something messed up his phone. Who knows? Um, But I actually had the good fortune of speaking to him earlier this afternoon for the Star Observer, where I work, and um, he sort of was a bit Reflective on his time um, in the Senate. I mean, you, I think, you know, when you become a senator, you expect that you'll either do your three or six year term. You don't expect it to get mm. the boot after 10 months. So I feel like he just had started to get uh, the wheels in motion and really gain some momentum in the stuff that he was advocating for. Um, and, you know, he said he was sad and disappointed that, you know, he got a short stint, but he's 32. Like, he'll be back. He's going to go on holiday. He's I a think baby. He's, he's a baby. He's going to try <laughs> find a boyfriend because, you know, being in the Senate is t- too busy to date. So I mm. think he's going to try and do some, you know, fun, normal people stuff. downline um, down yeah, maybe get on Grinder. Who knows? Yes. And You know, mm-hmm. best of luck to him. He's a good-looking guy. Um, but I think... His reflection was he was disappointed. They had anticipated he might lose his seat, uh, but he said he was quite proud of the work that he'd done. So we need to remember he was a very vocal uh, supporter, Supporter of uh, trans kids. He really vocally supported safe schools, but he was one of the um, first uh, federal politicians to really fight to have PrEP, which is pre exposure prophylaxis, a HIV preventative drug. He really fought for that to be introduced into the TGA and on the PBS. So he might have only been there for 10 months, but he was a, a really strong ally for the community. Mm, yeah, and
6: everything I said about feeling
3: good after the election. <laughs> and <laughs> there's, well, there's, still, there's still, you know, advocates in there. There's, you know, <laughs> Lee uh, and there's he- still heaps of LGBT, LGBTI advocates in the Parliament. Yeah. He was just a really good one.
4: Yeah, and a, and <laughs> a young one, and someone who's really been, you know, a, a, as a young person a pretty strong role model for, for future politicians, and somebody who's paved the way for LGBTI rights in Australia. So we owe our thanks yeah, we can't <laughs> wait to have him back. So a little earlier
3: on we were talking about um, how young trans people need to go into the family court in order to get permission to go on hormone therapy if they're under 18. We've had a text come in on 0427JOY949 and the person has asked could I ask in regards to the court appearance, is it an adversarial process or just a formality? It is uh, something that they have to go through. So um, it's a necessary process. It's part of the law. So I don't know if I would call that a formality, but um, it's uh, a necessity for uh, people under the age of 18 to start hormone therapy.
4: Okay, well that's pretty much all we've got time for. A big thank you to all of our guests this evening, Naomi and Isabel McNamara, Mona and well, would have been Robert Sims, but <laughs> Shannon Power filling in Shannon for Sims. Shannon Power Sanders. filling in for Robert Sims. Hopefully we'll we'll get him on at a later stage in the week. I'm Stephanie McLean. Signing off for the last time. Thanks yes. for
0: everything, Steph. <laughs> I'm Shannon Power and I'm Emma Arnold. And thanks for joining us. You're listening to Joy 94.9, and this is A Little Pot of Joy with Andrea and Alice today.
2: Next, we have a podcast from abroad, Gay, Lesbian, Then and Now.
0: Sonia is joined by Sherlene Robinson, co-author of Gay, Lesbian, Then and Now.
2: Over 70 years, Australia has quietly undergone one of the biggest social rev- revolutions in history. Once viewed as criminal, sinners or sick, lesbians and gay men are increasingly accepted as equal and the majority of Australians support same-sex marriage. This rapid transformation in social attitudes has widened the space for lesbians and gays to live ordinary and visible lives in ways that were once barely imaginable.
0: Through the intimate life stories of 13 gay and lesbian Australians, ranging in age from 20 to 80... Gay and Lesbian Then and Now reveals the legacies of homophobia, the personal struggles and triumphs involved in coming out, the inconsistent state of social progress, and the many different ways of being gay or lesbian in Australia then and now.
2: So if you couldn't listen to the show live, podcasts are available for download from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash broad or from the iTunes store.
1: This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program.
9: This is Sonia for Broad, and we're very fortunate to speak to co-author Dr. Shirlene Robinson about a book called Gay and Lesbian, Then and Now, Australian Stories from a Social Revolution. Welcome to Broad. Thank you for talking with me. Excellent. And so tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to get involved in writing putting this book together.
10: Well, uh, Robert and myself, who who's the co-author, we're both mm. historians who work at Macquarie University mm-hmm. and um, identify as members of the LGBT community. And we were really interested, I guess, in using oral history interviews to look at the way that gay and lesbian people have experienced a lot of the really dramatic social changes of the last 60 years.
9: Yeah, well, it is quite a, a very interesting uh aspect they've put on it as a social revolution. And calling it that, what was the impetus as, as part of the content and as part of the name of the book to call it a social revolution?
10: I think um, we were inspired by the fact that if you have a look back to, I guess, how people thought about homosexuality, really, I guess, until the quite recent past, something Mm. really dramatic and significant has changed. So we could be talking about, you know, the 1960s where people were going through forcible treatment in the medical profession or up to even in New South Wales, you know, the 1984... When it was illegal to engage in, in male-to-male sexual activity, and now we're talking about um, a situation where 72% of Australians support marriage equality. So those changes have occurred quite quickly, and and it led us to argue that that rapid transformation in attitudes really has been something of a revolution.
9: Mm. Yeah. No. It's 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 an interesting one. You do call it though uh, a sort of a, a quiet or silent revolution, not the the sort of raging. I mean. Sort of things yeah. that maybe some people expect. Is that an Australian? Uh, do you think that's an Australian thing in particular? So it's um, we I didn't have a Stonewall exactly.
10: Um, that- I, you raise an interesting point. So mm. I guess um, I guess we, we a lot of the social change I think that has happened for gay and lesbian people particularly. I think it has. It's been very important what has happened internationally. So you know things like Stonewall do have. I think a really big historic importance, um, and, you know, obviously in Australia we had Mardi Gras in 1978, mm-hmm. which was um, a really important turning point as well, so that public visibility. But I think there's something that's also been happening, I guess, within the workplace and within homes and uh, in discussions between people. So the people that we were interested in talking to were perhaps people whose stories hadn't been told. You know, there's been some really interesting mm-hmm. work that's been done on activists, um, who were very important. But we were really interested in looking at the stories of people that you might think of as being sort of more ordinary, everyday people and to look at what life had been like for them, you know, over the course of the past 60 years or so.
9: Yeah, that's interesting indeed. Um, And also for our show, looking at feminism, looking at women and their experiences and their journey and stories that they have, mm-hmm. um, did that sort of also come out in your investigations uh as you were doing the um research about you know women's experiences in particular within the community
10: Uh, i think it it was really interesting so um you know the book obviously we interviewed gay men and lesbians Mm. but it became quite clear that there's very different experiences that have happened historically for those two groups of people that both been subjected to discrimination for women definitely um Mm. women sort of, you know, um, I guess, who came of age during the the women's movement, that's an incredibly powerful and significant um, force in their lives for a lot of them. Mm. And it really does, I think, um, give them um, a sense of community, uh, which is very important, and a sense of support, which is important. So um, a lot of people will talk about um, that as being something that really does empower them quite significantly of a particular generation.
9: Yes. And as you were going through, um, as you were going through the research, did you find, we're now looking at millennials, the any sort of differences that, you know, jumped out at you in regards to that.
10: Well, uh, I think that it's quite the big, the biggest um, change that you can sort of see coming through and it's hard to... I guess it kind of reflects a lot of debates that have been happening mm-hmm. within the community, but there's sort of a bit of a move towards people perhaps wanting to live lives that we might consider as being more ordinary, whereas in the past perhaps people were... Particularly people in the LGBT community were more interested, I guess, in this idea of... Um, transgressive experiences and sort of, you know, the rich culture that came from, I guess, being outside of society. Mm. Since for our millennials, there's been much more of a move towards being ordinary, um, living a sort of fairly um, ordinary suburban life. And, um, you know, that that's, it's interesting because that's something that wouldn't have been possible, you know, for, for the sort of earlier people that we interviewed. Um, in terms of uh, the mm. question of feminism and whether that's, I guess, important for younger people, That's, um, it's not really something that came up as much in the course of our interviews and I Mm. suppose in that sense perhaps that is something that might reflect interviews that you perhaps might do with um, younger straight uh, people. They might sort of not talk about it so much as being a force, um, which is a really interesting question I think for feminism more broadly about what people think it is and making people understand that it is something that is important and influential and um, helpful in life.
9: I guess with the history too of uh, the movements themselves, how they kind of blended and uh, have both, um, you know, experienced that connection to one another with civil rights movements and and things like feminism and, of course, uh, queer rights, gay and lesbian, LGBTIQ uh, rights and equality. Uh, Those sort of things have merged over time. Uh, So, do you think that's a, a trend for the future?
10: It's really interesting, so um, I guess because we, we sort of did this book and, you know, we talked mm. about um, a lot of, really, some of our people were born, like Merv, um, one of the guys that's in the start yes. of the book, he can remember, you know, World War II, so there's a yeah. big sort of uh, span of ages in the book, um, and, you know, if you, if you look at it, it looks like in some ways, I guess you could say the book shows that perhaps life is becoming a little bit easier for gay and lesbian people, but as a historian, I think the co-author Robert and I would both be a little bit hesitant to predict mm. what the future might hold. You know, you can move forward, but things can also swing and there can be back- backlashes and things like that. So I think, if anything, it, it just shows, I guess, um, you know, what, what has been a remarkable social change and, uh, and I guess, a move towards uh, equality and acceptance and certainly one that I hope will continue to progress.
9: Mm. And while you were doing, um, as a woman, while you were doing the book yourself, what, um what sort of, uh, you know, what sort of questions did you have about your own self, if any, uh, when you were talking to a lot of the people that are in the
10: book? Uh, I, I suppose because I identify as being um, a lesbian myself, that was, it was mm-hmm. interesting. You know, you feel like you would have, I guess, some sort of understanding and connection with a lot of the other women, Um and I thought, you know, that was quite a nice thing to go into mm. the interviews and do. But um, I guess the way that women and men tell their stories often can be quite different. Um, so I would go in there with a bit of an awareness about that. Mm. Um, I was Because in my um, non-university life, I do a little bit of work around marriage equality. Um, I was always quite interested to see how people viewed that without, of course, sort of expressing my own views on that issue. So that was one that I was, you know... Found quite interesting the way people viewed relationships and and um, you know I guess had commitment to each other or didn't have commitment to each other um, in a pre-marriage equality era and perhaps what they might make of it today because that's been a, a very rapid shift so that's something that interested me a little bit.
9: Mm. Um, now some of the characters are just looking at some of the the, the women that you obviously interviewed and spoke to and and connected with as such. Uh, there, there are people that such a wide diverse of diversity of. Um, People. With, I was going to say characters, because they come across as char, You know, like <laughs> characters in some amazing uh, journey. There, you've got uh, a woman who, in the 70s, people like Jenny, uh, who didn't feel that uh, she was not hesitant, but she didn't really want to stand out. And and then later on in the book, you've got women that are definitely, you know, very comfortable with their identity and and aren't ashamed or whatever don't feel uh, any hesitancy to stand out uh, what was it like talking to those those women uh, and those differences
10: oh it's really interesting I guess and it does show to some extent how mm. you are formed by the era that you grow up in so Jenny who you mentioned mm. you know uh, came of age at a time when um, lesbianism was something that really wasn't spoken of at all. So she had to develop her sense of, I guess, identity as a woman and also her sense of identity as a lesbian at a time when there were very few representations yeah. of that. Whereas uh, younger people, and I think you might be referring to uh, Alex, um, who's also in the book, uh, grew up when there were sort of many more images of of lesbians in the media or in a, in a school where it was are quite okay to be mm. uh, openly lesbian, and that's like, uh, something that would be unimaginable, I think, to somebody like Jenny or perhaps even Nola, who grew up a little bit earlier than um, Jenny. Yeah. That the way that, that if you had sort of told them that, um, you know, there'll be there'll be schools that would be absolutely accepted to, you know, bring your same-sex partner to to, to a to a ball or a formal exactly. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it would have be been un- unbelievable.
9: It's unbe- uh, yeah, and it's such a short time, really. It's not even a hundred years that you're covering. It is it's relatively pretty short period of time. Time, I guess. And
10: that's why, that's why it interesting to speak to some, some of the older people, I guess, because mm. they have just sort of, um, you know, watched this happen in, over the course of their life and they're, they're, the way that um, their sexual identity has sort of, um, I guess gotten more and more mainstream attention and um, more recognition more visibility and Mm. I guess what that has meant for their sense of self has been a fascinating thing to to talk to them about and to try and capture for the National Library of Australia which was another I guess really important part of the project that we worked with the National Library of Australia so they um, they'll give a home to the 60 interviews that we did as part of the broader project which is also really uh, lovely to think.
9: Yeah no I mean that is that is amazing Joy. You're listening to Joy
2: 94.9 and this is a little pot of joy with your hosts, Andrea and Alice.
9: Next, we have a podcast from Saturday
0: Magazine, Tien and Brady, Marriage Equality Australia.
2: Tin and Brady from Marriage Equality Australia joins Macca and Tas to discuss marriage equality in relations to the 2016 federal election and what this means for the LGBTIQ community.
0: And if you just can't listen to the show live, podcasts are available for download from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash Saturday Magazine or the iTunes store.
1: You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. You're listening to Saturday Magazine. Our next guest is uh, Tiernan Brady from Marriage Equality Australia. And we've actually asked him to come on board and have a conversation with us this morning about what does this election mean? Good morning, Tinan.
11: Morning. Thanks for having us.
1: It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So, what does this election mean for our marriage equality? What's your assessment of the situation so far?
11: I suppose there's two or three things emerge from it. You know, there's two a couple of definites already, and then there's one or two things that aren't clear. Um, the definites are there have never been more members of the lower house elected who are in favour of marriage equality. And we don't have the final number yet, but we already know that we have got more people from every single party elected uh, who are in favour of parties. Well, that's a
1: great outcome in itself, isn't it?
11: Absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes we have to own our victories um, as we work out what our next step is all the time. Um, So, you know, that in itself is brilliant news. And it's great that they're from every single party because I think, you know, one of the lessons we had in Ireland very clearly was it was very important to make sure we had voices from every part of the political spectrum on this because, you know, there are gay people in every party and gay people vote for every party along with their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. So that's really empowering for people, hopefully. Yes. Um, the second piece that's really good news, and I, I think Adam was about to talk about it before, was we've never had as many, well, I was about to say LGBT uh, yeah. MPs and senators, but it's mostly G still. Unfortunately, we don't have, we, you know, we haven't got any trans people elected um at, at this point uh, but you know in the lower house now we have at least four um uh, and then in the upper house there's another three so that's a really that's very powerful to have those voices within each party
1: and that's open that's openly l g um mps really isn't it so there yeah. may be there may be a few others i think yeah there are a few but <laughs> and that's all right
11: <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then I think within I mean, that's a really powerful dynamic within party rooms, you know, because you stop talking about lesbian and gay people in the abstract. Yeah. When there's a lesbian and gay person in the room, uh, and one of the great developments of this election is now both Liberal and Labour, in particular, have you know lesbian and gay people inside their party rooms, and people can see this is about a real person, their lives, their families. You know, someone who lives on your street or sits across from you at work. You know, and I think that's a transfer, potentially a transformative moment within party rooms.
1: Actually, Tin, and one of our listeners has just emailed in and said that in the lower house, there are four um, uh, gay and lesbian MPs. Three are Liberal, and one is Labor. Now, that in itself is quite interesting. That the more conservative the parties actually has delivered three. <laughs> openly but,
12: but but also sorry tin and Tess. what it says is also is that you know a couple of those uh, uh, liberal gay mps are quite conservative so you know there's often an assumption made um and you quite rightly pointed out that you know our community vote for all parties but there's often an assumption made that uh um the LGBTI community is is to the left, and that's actually not. No, that's actually
1: no, not. No, we're a broad
12: church, yeah, aren't we? We are actually <laughs> a broad church.
11: It always, it always strikes me. It turns out LGBT people are exactly the same as people. That's yes. right. Which yes. is the point we've always been trying to make about marriage, uh, and it's true about politics too. I mean, and it's not unique to Australia. I think one of the most powerful advocates in Ireland for the marriage in the marriage equality referendum that was held there was Leo Varadkar, who was the Minister for Health, who came out as a gay man. And, you know, that's a very centre-right party. Yes. You know? And the leaders from the LGBT political community were very much centre-right.
1: Yes. So, so Tinan, do we now have an absolute majority of um, uh, MPs who support marriage equality in the lower house?
11: If there was a free vote without a whip by the parties, we absolutely do. And yes. um, we don't have final numbers yet, but we're well in excess of 80, 85 MPs who have publicly said that they are for uh, marriage equality. And I suppose the challenge then and the bit that is unclear as we wait for the final numbers and as we wait for what the government is going to look like and what the Senate will look like yes. is, you know, what's the pathway to making marriage equality a reality now? Yes. Because we know we have more supporters. We know we have more gay and lesbian people in there, you know. We know also, and I think it's just so important for us to remind politicians, we know that 70% of Australians, even in that Fairfax poll the day of the election, 70% of Australians are for marriage equality, and they're a majority of people in every single party uh, of the voters. So it's all about, you know, now's the time for politicians especially to work together to deliver a pathway, because this is the will of the people, and it's, it's time we... In the clearest, hopefully simplest way possible, made it a reality by the end of the year.
12: Do you see uh, the uh, the the fact that the coalition have just scraped over the line, and there's been some criticism within the coalition of uh, how marriage equality was uh, a, a, a fairly strong part of the campaign. That do you see this this vote for the government, this this belated uh, election? as a rejection of a plebiscite? Do you think people actually... You know,
11: it's so hard to read, because, I mean, yeah. of course, most people vote on dozens and dozens and dozens of issues, uh, and we all have our own individual waiting system of whether it's education or health or roads or marriage equality, and, of course, you know, 90-something percent of people aren't gay, so, you know, more likely their waiting system was probably other policies. the I think the more important point for us as well you know, now is, especially when we have you know, a very tight majority, is that political parties need to work together. And the one thing we do know is it is absolutely legally unnecessary to have a plebiscite. Before we even talk about the impact of it or the pros and cons politically, there's no one out there saying this is a legal requirement. Ireland had to do this because it was a constitutional referendum, so we were legally bound to have a public vote. And that's not the case here. So if it can be avoided politically, if parties can work together to make sure they can avoid it politically, they should try their best to do that, and we should try our best to help
12: them. And it's important to remember that when the Marriage Act was changed when uh, Nicola Roxon, to her great shame, to her great shame for Labour, and the Liberals, when it was changed, uh, the Liberal Party, who was in majority government, didn't think that to change the Marriage Act needed a plebiscite.
11: Yeah, I mean, and of course they were right, it doesn't need a plebiscite, in the same way that we know now, everybody else is right when we say it doesn't need a plebiscite to read. To, to institute marriage equality in Australia. and I think it's probably and I could, it's so understandable. I know uh, over the few months that I've been here and met you know so many groups around the country, the real level of frustration among especially LGBT people but their families, their yeah. parents and their supporters to know that this isn't required but politically we may have to face it.
1: So um, what, what does this election crazy. what does this election really mean for the plebiscite? Do you think that that plebiscite has lost its mandateness? Is this such a word?
11: <laughs> no, <but laughs> we can invent. I love the uh, the political journey of getting marriage equality in Australia is being invented every day. I think we can invent some words to go with it as well. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, look, it's hard to tell right now. Um, there'll be internal party room discussions to come up. Uh, We don't know what dynamic uh, is going to take place within those party rooms about, you know, which side of the party, let's say, in the Liberals or Labour is stronger. You know, what we do know is we have two party leaders, uh, Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull, who are both for marriage equality. So that's good. We should bank that as a victory and work out influence insofar as we can and make sure we do everything we can to have our voice heard within Parliament about why we think it is unnecessary actually well, why we know it is unnecessary and why it would be preferable uh, in every scenario to have this done by a straightforward vote it's very hard to read the dynamic inside the party rooms um at this stage i think it'll be an animal all of its own over the over the coming week hmm.
12: look it's uh, it's going to be very interesting times uh and i know we're going to be speaking to you uh quite a bit I just want to ask, uh, are you enjoying uh, living in in Australia? It's it's quite different to, to Ireland, isn't it?
11: Uh, well, look, I, <laughs> I was coming to the office the other day in a shirt and everyone else had a coat and a scarf on. <laughs> uh, so that was the first incl- inclination. So, yes, I, I'm certainly enjoying the climate. Everyone keeps telling me it's cold and I'm looking at them like they're slightly mad. Yeah. Uh, look, the the people are amazing we've done so met so many groups from around the country and so many individuals you're know, working on this we just want to you know get it done by whatever path we have to face to do it and mm. i mean so most of what i've been doing so far is meeting people and that's always you know the best way to learn about a country and it's been brilliant so far there, i think anyone listening to the program could take great faith in in knowing that you know in every corner of australia there are people who are just the most amazing advocates from parents to brothers and sisters to LGBT people, you know, and, and you know, over the next few months, from again whichever path we do face, you know, we have to make sure all those voices are heard yep. in all of those places where Australians live.
12: We do, Tiernan, Tiernan Brady. Thank you so much for your time. I know we're going to be talking to you again, uh, and enjoy no. the, and
11: enjoy the cold. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll talk to you any time.
0: You're on Joy 94.9 with Andrea and Alice, and we've come to the end of another evening of A Little Pot of Joy.
2: There are so many more programs on Joy 94.9, producing a diverse range of content and podcasts.
0: Even your favorite program from the past will have a podcast, so you can go back and listen to your favorite joy moment.
2: You can find the complete podcast from tonight's show on the Joy website, joy.org.au, or download them from the iTunes store.
0: And hey, thanks for having me, Andrea.
2: Thank you for coming along.
0: I thought
1: it was fun. You've been listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. See joy.org.au and click on our podcast link to subscribe to your favourite podcasts free.
0: Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy.